This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. This last in the series, we have a really interesting talk on a biological invention. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce our biologist to you, Matt Coleman, Amy Rasley, and Wei He. And I'll let them tell you a little bit about themselves. I'm Matt Coleman. I'm a senior scientist at Lawrence Livermore Labs, um, and my specialty is molecular and cellular biology. I'm Amy Rasley. I'm also a scientist at Livermore. I've been there about 12 years, and my background is in immunology. My name is Wei. Uh, I'm a postdoc at the lab. I have a PhD in pharmacology. Uh, what am I interested in is uh, uh, finding new drugs to treat disease. Okay, and joining them today is Aaron McKay from Tracy High School. And so with that, we'll get started with today's presentation. Thanks. Well, thank you, everybody, for showing up today. I'm, as I mentioned, I'm Matt Coleman, and I'm going to talk about building biologically inspired nanobots uh, today uh, with my colleagues and how we're using these uh, at Lawrence Livermore. So first of all, I want to give you a general outline of what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to try to describe to you what are these nanobots and how do we go uh, and derive these nanobots, how do we visualize and look at these things. Uh, they're very small, and it's a very small scale. And then we're going to talk about uh, how do we impart function into our nanobots to do the different things that we're interested in. So first of all, I want to define the term for you, robot. And I, and I think this is important because when robot, you hear the word robot, you know, what, sort of what comes to mind. A lot of you might, if you're younger, you're thinking Star Wars or some, some show on, you know, the Discovery Channel or the Sci-Fi Channel. If you're old like me, maybe you're thinking about Lost in Space, Danger Will Robinson. So something very mechanical. Um, so I just want to remind you that in very basic terms, what is a robot? Well, basically, it's a machine capable of carrying out a complex series or actions to do something, right? And it can do it over and over very repetitively to do the same thing. And today, we want to talk about using biology to actually make something like a robot, something that can be uh, uh, do a job, do it repetitively and robustly over and over. Um, and then to, to sort of talk about that at the biological scale, we need to talk about what does scale mean in terms of biology and what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what are the different materials we use, uh, what are the building blocks to make these nanobots in the end. And then we're going to have several examples of what can we do with these nanobots. What are we thinking about doing with these? How do they fit in with the big picture of human health and disease, uh, bio biotechnology, uh, animal welfare, uh, etc.? So first of all, I want to invite Aaron back out to talk about scale. Okay, so scale. In the United States, you might be more familiar with this side of the stick, as it's called. It's got inches, feet, and yards. But this is not a yardstick. It's a meter stick. That's what we use it for, because a meter is a key 
unit of measure that we use in science, and then we break it down from there. Now, we're not interested in big things with today's talk. This is not astrophysics. We're interested in smaller things. So let's look at beyond the meter stick. Now, if you've ever spent much time with a ruler and you ever bothered to look on the other side beyond the inches, you would have seen on the other side the centimeters and the itsy-bitsy lines that marked out the millimeters. So there are 100 centimeters in a meter. There are 1,000 millimeter lines within a meter. And even that is a little too big for what we're talking about here. We need to get down past millimeters to micrometers to nanometers. And micrometers, as you can see, are one one millionth of a meter. So imagine cutting this up into a million even pieces, okay? Which means that in between the tiniest little lines here, we would have, for the millimeter, divided up a thousand times, and each of those little pieces would be a micrometer. And a nanometer is one one billionth of a meter. So we could fit a million nanometers within the space between the millimeter line. Now let's give ourselves some perspective on this. So yes, ants, we can see those, we've run across those, and an average ant is about five millimeters or half a centimeter. But let's jump down to some smaller things. Hair, so you know it's relatively slim, but how slim is it? It's about 60 to 120 micrometers. So you could take approximately 10 of them, squeeze them together, and they would fit between the gap in a millimeter line. And then you have beyond the hair, you have the red blood cells. Now, most of you have probably not seen red blood cells up close and personal, though you've seen the blood, because you need a microscope to see a red blood cell. They're seven to eight micrometers. You could line over 100 of them, close to 120 of them up, in a straight line between the millimeter lines on the stick. And then going beyond the micrometer, let's go down to the nanometer, things that are very hard to conceive of. Remember, a nanometer is one one billionth of a meter. All right, so, so now we understand what a nanometer is sort of in size, and what we're actually going to be working with uh, in, in the talk today is something called the nanolipoprotein that I'm showing you here in this cartoon. That's about 10 to 25 nanometers, but let's blow that picture up of this cartoon that we have. So what are you looking at in this cartoon? Well, you're looking at in orange color is a protein belt, and that protein belt is going all the way around those yellow molecules, and those yellow molecules are lipids. Lipids are f like fats, if you think about it, and the lipids are part of a membrane um, in your normal cells, and that membrane uh, can actually be surrounded and corralled by the protein to make a little lipid raft. That lipid raft, as I mentioned, is 10 to 25 nanometers. Uh, and it has a certain height of about five to six nanometers. If we go to the next slide here, what I have is a very pretty picture uh, with a lot of atomic resolution of all the different molecules that make up this uh, uh, protein. And what you're looking at in purple and blue are the protein components, and there's actually two protein components that are there. And I have a little 3D printed model here I, I just want to show you with those protein components. Uh, and here they're modeled in white, and the pink part is actually just to model uh, the lipids. And what you can see is that these actually come off. They're like a little bracelet 
for instance, and there's sort of, there's two of these. So there's two proteins that come in, surround uh, these lipids, and this little pink model would represent somewhere around 100 to 150 different uh, lipids. So the interesting thing, though, about this protein is that this is actually a naturally occurring protein in your body. And when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, you know, uh, you know, Matt, you're looking a little fat. We want to test your cholesterol. They're going to actually say, hey, yeah, we want to look at your cholesterol level. And that's actually based on a protein called apolipoprotein, which is one of these. And that comes together to form this particle, and it makes a high-density lipoprotein particle, HDL. That's your good cholesterol. But it can also, uh, there's another component called your LDL, low-density lipoprotein. That's your bad particle. And this actually occurs naturally uh, in your body. And in the next slide, I'm going to invite Wei and Aaron out uh, to give you sort of a demonstration of how this protein uh, works. So when you go out to lunch and you have that fatty burger, remember this model. Okay, so Matt just explained why it's so relevant to us mm -hmm. to understand for the human body, but how do you model this in a lab setting, the clearing mm -hmm. of lipids? Well, we, uh, we don't have to show it in the body. We mimic what's happening in the body in a test tube. So fat, first of all, what is fat? Uh, lipids, yeah, those yes. are lipids. So lipids are known to be not soluble in water. When you add the lipids in the water, they form large particles. As a result, they look opaque and cloudy. cloudy. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, it's very obvious. And then we add NLP to these test tubes. What they do is they go in there, break down the large lipid particles, absorb it into the NLP, and form smaller particles, much, much smaller. They are nanometer size smaller. So it's small enough that the light waves can get through and yes. we don't even notice that they're there. They're still there. Yeah. They're just differently arranged. And as a result, the look will look clear. Oh. Now, I see in this lab that you're using some specialty tools. Oh, yeah. What are you using? Oh, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of fun tools in the lab. Uh, they're amazing. One of the most common ones are the ones uh, just handled. It's called a micropipetter. So uh, what it does is transfer a small volume of liquid. How small? Well, they are small. How small is very small? Microliter. So one one millionth of a liter or one one thousandth of a milliliter? Milliliter. Correct. Good math. <laughs> I can do math in my head. Yes. Yep. So there are other tools, and, and also you can see those green box and red boxes. And those have tips in them, right? Why, yeah. do you, why are you changing your tips constantly? Well, because the tip is actually the part that actually touches the reagent you're transferring. You have to change the tips so that these reagents don't cross-contaminate each other. Oh, we don't like contamination in the lab. Mm, no. That must lead to messed up results. <laughs> oh, do we have a results slide next? Should we skip I ahead? I think so, yeah. Yeah, let's skip ahead. Mm -hmm. So, oh, is. I see two tubes. Did one of your experiments not work? Mm, good question. Because one of them's still cloudy. Okay, so here's the thing. In actual experiment, we usually do two. One is the real experiment. The other one is what we call control. What is a control? So control is the thing that usually you don't add one component so that you show the difference. Uh, you can see it, it's different here. 
So did you not add the NLPs in this in the cloudy Correct, one? correct. Ah. So the left tube here is the one that was just the lipid particles. As I said, it's cloudy or opaque. And after I add the NLP and then the right tube, it's clear. Wonderful. That makes so much more sense about how it is to yeah. work in the lab and model that this is possible in mm -hmm. a laboratory setting. Thank you very sure. much. You're welcome. So now we're going to move on and we're going to talk about how it is possible to make the proteins essential in this lab, as it is the orange protein belt we see up on the screen. Now, some of you have heard of proteins and you might know that DNA codes for how to build proteins, but let's do a little review to make sure we're all on the same page. So, you might have heard of the central dogma. DNA codes for RNA, RNA codes for protein. Now, we've talked about DNA, we talked about protein. RNA might be new to you. It's the less famous cousin of DNA. So, DNA is, uh, stores the genetic uh, information for life, and if you have a segment of it, a gene that codes for a protein, then that can help us build our protein. But it doesn't magically happen. First, the DNA double helix needs to unwind, and along with the help of a special enzyme called RNA polymerase, um, an enzyme is a protein that helps a chemical reaction happen, and its name tells us what it does. So RNA polymerase goes along the DNA molecule and builds the RNA molecule off of the DNA molecule, because the DNA kind of just sits around. It's the RNA that's actually going to be the go-between to help build this protein that we want for that protein belt. So the RNA peels off of the DNA and goes and meets up with an organelle you might have heard of, ribosomes. They're the tiny little um, organelles that you find in both prokaryotic cells and eukaryotic cells. And if you've ever had to draw cell drawing, they're the things that you just make little polka dots all over your page to represent. So ribosomes are going to read the RNA three letters at a time and build our protein, and proteins are made of amino acids represented by the little yellow uh, circles up there. Now let's go a little bit further in depth for some of you that might know a little bit about the actual nucleotides that make up DNA and the actual nucleotides that make up RNA, and then how this process happens. So you might be familiar with DNA has A, T, C, and G, adenine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine and that A pairs with T and C pairs with G. And we can see that it almost uses that same rule when RNA polymerase enzyme is building the RNA molecule off the DNA, except for there's something a little bit different. Look carefully at that RNA molecule. You see A's, you see C's, you see G's. What does it have that's different for the RNA? What does it have? Uracil, U. What did it replace? Thymine, the T, very good. Okay. And then as we see, when translation is occurring, when the ribosome is going along and reading the RNA, it reads it three letters at a time, three-letter words. We call them codons. And AUG is all a very important codon because it is the start codon, and it always codes for methionine. And then from there on, the ribosome just goes three-nucleotide word, codon, what's the next amino acid, what's the next amino acid, what's the next amino acid, until it builds the string of amino acid chains that will help fold and become the protein. In our case, we're trying to build the belt that will help make the NLP. And so from here, I'm going to pass it on. All right, thank you, Aaron.
All right, so Aaron gave you a really nice uh, description of what this central dogma is, and how are we going to apply that in the laboratory and use that? Well, so you can see on top, uh, on your left, colored in purple, is a little picture of the ribosome, sort of just like she described. We can take from a cell the ribosomes, the polymerases, the tRNAs, the amino acids, uh, all the molecules used for energy to make these uh, little machines work, uh, and we can add a DNA template as encoded in uh, pink here, and we can put that all into a single test tube, put it at one temperature, shake it all about, and we get what's called that coupled transcription and translation. So we make our RNA from some DNA, and that DNA makes the protein all in a single test tube. And that can take a matter of minutes to hours, depending on what kind of protein you're trying to make. In our case, we want to go back to that little cartoon model of the nanolipoprotein, and I want to introduce another term, and that's this idea of scaffold. So remember, we're going to try to build nanobots, so we need a building block or something to build on, and that scaffold is going to be our NLP. So in this case, we also need another important ingredient that they showed you in that demonstration, and that's lipids. That apolipoprotein requires some lipids to grab hold of, fill itself out into this little disc shape uh, uh, to make this little nanoparticle. So we also have several tools in the lab in which we need to be able to visualize these different uh, nanoparticles uh, at different levels and scales. So uh, I'm not going to give you a lot of details, but I do just want to walk you through basically some of the things we look at in the laboratory. So on your left, first of all, is what's called the polyacrylamide gel. Um, it's kind of like jello, and proteins can run through this jello matrix, and they separate based on the size of the protein. So at the top of the picture are all the big proteins, and as you get to the bottom, you get smaller proteins, and you're looking at something called a ladder. And I hope everyone can see there's a little ladder there with bands, and that means as we go from the top to the bottom, those are bigger proteins separated uh, from the smaller proteins making a ladder, and then in red, in the circle, that's our apolipoprotein that we can look at in this gel matrix. In the next picture, we can go into a little more detail at the single molecule level, and we can ask the question about these apolipoproteins about how are they changing in height. If you remember, I told you these are five to six nanometers in height, and I can measure them across these particles, and I can tell something about when they're, uh, the height is changing, because that's going to tell me some information about when I put things on top of my particle or in my particle, the size or the height is going to change, and that's important information. So in the blue box in that red square, you see some things, they look like mountains. So they're not perfectly disk like the models that I showed you, but you see these little mountains. And so as they go from red on the background to higher and higher, you get more and more this green color of intensity, and that's in indicating to me height, that something's being put in it. And then finally, I want to talk about electron microscopy. So we have a microscope that allows us to go in and actually look at these individual particles. Um, so we're getting high, high, super high magnification. In this case, sometimes 65,000 
times uh, magnification of these particles. And in the A box, you can see that there are lots of different particles. You're looking at them on their sides. So you have a nice side view. You have top views. You have bottom views. Uh, and you even have them stacking together and touching each other. In the B box, just to give you once again an idea of what scale we're working at, um, if you look in there, you'll see these two lines that sort of go through uh, that image and that picture. Those two lines, that's actually a virus particle that you're looking at. And the donut that's next to the virus particle is actually a top view of one of these NLPs sitting next to a virus. So you get an idea immediately, these are smaller than a virus. Uh, and then in C, I'm just giving you a big blow up um, and it's just kind of fuzzy and spherical of what these look like. And in this case, this one's about 12.5 nanometers uh, in uh, diameter. All right, so the scaffold and the apolipoprotein that forms the NLP, as I told you, that's our building block. And what we want to do is make a functional nanobot from that building block. So we need to do something. And that something is we need to modify the NLP and put functions on it. And how can we do that? Well, we can use chemistry to attach molecules or dyes or tags, indicators um, to the lipids component of the NLP, or to the, which is the yellow part, or to the orange belt of the NLP, or we can actually use this system of making proteins that I told you about to make proteins that will sit on top of the NLP or will actually sit through the NLP, embed themselves in the NLP. And that embedding yourself in the NLP is what membrane proteins in your body actually do. They, they sit and they go through that membrane uh, layer. And of course, if we want to make something uh, multifunctional, then we want to put a lot of different things on the NLP so we can do lots of individual tasks. And so here I'm just showing you, well, I could combine all of those things. I could uh, chemically attach a label. I could put a membrane protein in the middle of my disk. And I can also put a protein on the surface uh, of that disk. And so um, what I'm trying to describe to you then is so we have our NLP. We're going to functionalize that NLP, and that function turns it into a nanobot so that it can actually do a task repetitively over and over and over again. And then what we're going to move on in, then into the next part of the talk is to talk about what we can do with these nanobots. And we can do biochemistry in a test tube or in an animal. We can make sensors to detect microorganisms, pathogens, cancer, uh, other biological functions. We can use it for drug delivery, and we can also use it for cancer imaging. And today, we're really going to focus on three examples, and that's some of the biochemistry we're doing uh, at Lawrence Livermore Labs, uh, how we make sensors, uh, and how we're working to develop uh, the next generation of vaccines. And so I'd like to invite Amy out to take us through the next part of the talk. Okay. Good morning. Okay, as Matt mentioned, um, we have three specific applications that we're going to talk to you about today. The first one is just using these nanobots for basic biochemistry. 
So if you have had a window seat on a flight into or out of San Francisco International and you happen to look out your window, you might have noticed these beautiful ponds below you. Um, these are the Cargill salt ponds. And the color that you see in those ponds actually comes from the presence of microorganisms that live there. Um, specifically, the red color that you can see in this image comes from the presence of a microorganism known as Halobacterium salinarum. More specifically, the pigment that you see, the red color, comes from a protein called bacteriorhodopsin, which is the main protein present in the membrane of that microorganism, and it's pigmented. The function of this protein is to actually take light and convert that into chemical energy. So this protein essentially acts as a proton pump, and this is why you see this red color in the ponds. So bacteriorhodopsin is a perfect example of what we call an integral membrane protein which means that this particular protein, as I mentioned, is embedded in the membrane. And what it does is it essentially threads its way through that membrane, in, in this case, exactly seven times. So it's really stuck in there. Um, in order to study proteins like this, it's very difficult, because once you take them out of their, of their preferred native environment, which is the membrane, uh, they don't behave very well. And so studying them becomes quite challenging. And so what we can do with our nanobots is to basically isolate these proteins, put them into a native environment, which is this membrane-like environment, and then we can start to study them and ask various questions about their function. So as Matt mentioned, the way we do this is essentially in a test tube. So we have our reagents in this tube. Um, in this case, we're going to add the, the DNA encoding bacteriodopsin protein. Okay, and so what we get at the end of this reaction is going to be our nanobot, which is the NLP with the scaffold protein belt in orange and the bacteriodopsin protein embedded in that membrane. And so now this protein is going to be very happy in this native environment that we've provided, and now we can start interrogating it and, and doing various types of tests on this protein. So if you actually do this in the lab, um, it doesn't happen in minutes. It actually takes quite some time. Um, so you have your reaction in the test tube. But in reality, this process will take roughly five hours. Okay? And you can see these various photos um, on, on the right where you have you know, time zero where you start this reaction. And then you let that reaction progress from one hour all the way through five hours. And then you can tell that that reaction was successful because what you see in that last um, uh, tube is the pink color that you would expect to see. So that's the pigment, and that's due to bacteriorhodopsin being present and being functional in our nanobot. So again, this is just an example. Um, these are actual, this is an actual experiment, so these are tubes. One tube contains the nanobot, so bacterial rhodopsin embedded into the nanoparticle, and you can see that pink color on the right, so it's nicely dispersed throughout the solution. Um, and if you compare that to the control, which is just the bacterial rhodopsin protein without the NLP, you can see that that pink color is kind of um, settled at the bottom of the tube, okay? So it, it's no longer um, active and it, it's not soluble anymore. So it just falls out of solution. Um, and as Matt mentioned, we have various ways that we can visualize these types of particles. Um, the f and what I'm showing you on, on the right is an electron micrograph where you can see the um, disk-like structure in the middle um, with little pink circles. And those are actual uh, bacteriodopsin proteins. And we can use this type of data to, to make models. So in the upper right is a, is a model that um, a computer simulation of what this 
nanobot looks like. Um, so you can see it's, it's actually very similar to what we, what we observe in the, in the electron micrograph. So again, this is a very powerful way to study not only bacterial rhodopsin, but a lot of different membrane proteins that are just really difficult to work with because they really like to be in their native membrane environment. Okay, so now I'm going to ask Aaron and Wei to come out because Wei and Aaron are going to talk to you about how we actually make a fluorescently labeled protein. Thank you, Amy. Mm -hmm. So now we want to look at how it is possible to make these. So I notice when I'm looking up here, I recognize the DNA double helix, I recognize the tube, but the thing in purple... Is that, it says cell lysate on previous slides. Are, is cell lysate living cells that you use to make these proteins? Mm-hmm. Your question is what is cell lysate, right? Yeah, what okay. is cell lysate? So cell lysate is just a cell, a living cell would break them down and just extract the component from the cell and put them in different test tubes. Ah, so you've got the different parts. So like, I'm mm-hmm. assuming that the blue is a ribosome, that, so there's going to be ribosomes in the cell lysate? There are ribosomes and stuff, So because you just mentioned uh, how does cell make protein, mm-hmm. right? So there are those central dogma components there. There's the ribosome, there's the RNA polymerase. So you need RNA nucleotides stuff. too, right? I need RNA nucleotides and... What else? Oh, what, oh, the building blocks of protein. So that would Correct. be amino acids. That would be amino acids, yes. And so what I was doing there is just pipetting a lot of things into the same test tube. So there are the nucleus, there is the nucleotide, and also there's the uh, amino acid and stuff. At the end of it, I'm going to add a piece of DNA, and the DNA is going to encode the protein of interest. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's a green fluorescent protein. Ooh, the GFP. I yes. love GFP. Yes. It's so pretty. Yeah. So cell-free expression and the cell expression, these are just two orthogonal ways to make protein. Does it take a long time to make a protein? Oh, yes. So you will notice after that, I will have to wait. Do you do a lot of waiting as a scientist? Uh, that's a good question. So you're asking about the life in the lab, right? Yes. Yes, so there are a lot of waiting, yep. but we're not wasting time waiting. During the waiting time, we do a lot of thinking and the learning because we all are curious. We're curious about what's going to happen, what's behind what we see, and those are the driving of the science moving on. Mm-hmm. So after the thinking, it comes the most exciting part which is by the time you see the result, usually the results come out sometimes surprising, sometimes unexpected, and that's the fun part of the science. Ah, uh, yes, let's jump ahead to the results. We can skip the waiting part. Yes. So if we look up here, we see two test tubes. One's glowing, one's not. Mm-hmm. Can you explain why the one is not glowing? Well, I think I just mentioned something about control. Mm-hmm. So one of them is actually a control experiment. Guess which one's the control? The not glowing one. Correct. So, and the glowing one? Yeah, yeah. So the one on the left side is the one that I actually add the green fluorescent protein DNA. So after the waiting, the protein is made. So it glows in the UV light. And the right one, of course, is the one I didn't add DNA. So you see the difference. Wow, that's exciting, because mm-hmm. I've done made GFP in my 
um, classroom lab before with my mm -hmm. students, and we make bacteria glow green under those black lights. I have a black light just like that in my classroom. But how do you guys use GFP in your lab setting? Oh, yeah, GFP, they are, you know, they glow green, they look so cool. There's a lot of good use of that for sure, right? I mean, one of them being you can just add it to makeups and then put it on your face, <laughs> and then you go out there, you look just so stand out, you can sit in hundreds of people and it can be easily recognized. Uh, there's got to be more practical uses than that. That's just kidding, okay. Um, for sure, yes, but it's similar. What we do is we use green fluorescent protein to label uh, our protein of interest so that we can keep track of them. And when we shine UV light on them, they just light up so we know where they are. And also, when we're talking about sensing, these green fluorescent proteins are easily sensible. We can use instruments to detect them. So they are also very important in the sensing. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Now Amy's going to come out and talk about a particular example of sensing mm -hmm. using these NLPs and right. nanobots. Here you go. Thank you. Okay, so Aaron and Wei have described how we make uh, green fluorescent labeled protein. Um, and GFP is a very common reagent that we use in the laboratory, but it has a very illustrious history. So green fluorescent protein was observed in the early 60s and then was adapted for use in biomedicine. And this really revolutionized the way that we do experiments, um, so much so that the researchers that actually discovered and pioneered the use of GFP received the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2008. So we routinely use it, but um, we don't want to forget that it has a pretty cool history as well. All right, so now how do we take this labeled protein and use it as a sensor? Okay, so let's say that we want our sensor to detect a microorganism, for example, okay? What we need in our nanobot is a protein that functions as a sensor. In other words, it can recognize a component of this microorganism so that we know when the microorganism is present. So in this case, we're going to put into our test tube the scaffold DNA for our NLP as well as our sensor DNA. So this is going to make the protein that's going to sense a component of this microorganism. So after we do our incubation step in the tube, we get our sensor out. And as Matt talked to you earlier, we can actually confirm that our nano sensor is intact and it's, it's, it has the components that we think it should have. Um, and so you can see the gel electrophoresis in the middle of the screen. Um, and what's labeled with the blue and orange arrow are the, um, the sensor protein in blue and the scaffold protein in orange, respectively. Okay? So we have our constituents of our sensor. Um, we can also use imaging to look at what happens um, when you start adding uh, proteins into the NLP. And Matt talked to you about atomic force microscopy. And what we're really looking at here is kind of a change in the height of the surface or the topology of the surface. Um, and so if you look at the, um, the graph below, you can see that when you start to put proteins into these NLPs, um, they get taller. Okay, so the height shifts and, it, and they become taller and then you can um, tell that something has been incorporated and so it's, it's contributing to that surface topology um, being different, okay? So we have our, our nano sensor. Um, we have the protein embedded in there that, that recognizes this microorganism and how do we detect that event actually happening? Um, and the way we do is just, it's, it's a simple binding event. So if you don't have binding between your nanosensor and your microorganism, um, you're not going to get any signal at all. And so what you're going to just see is this flat line represented in orange. 
If your nanosensor happens to recognize the microorganism, you're going to get a binding event that occurs. And that's shown in the green line. And that's a concentration-dependent event. So the more nanosensors you have there, the more binding you're going to get until you reach 100%. And you can see that curve will kind of plateau. Okay, And that tells you that you have 100% binding. So let's look at some real data. So here is our nano sensor, our nanobot sensor on the bottom. Okay, and this is a reconstruction of what this actually looks like based on data. Uh, so in blue is the protein sensor embedded into our disk. Um, and then this microorganism is secreting a protein in red that's got this GFP label. And our nano sensor recognizes that protein. So there will be a binding event if that protein in red is present. And we can measure that binding event. Um, and so this is a curve similar to the schematic I showed previously, and the stars actually represent real data points. Okay, so again, it's a concentration-dependent event where the more nanobots you have, the more binding you get um, up until 100%, and then that curve is going to plateau. Um, the line through that data is just the fit um, to, to the data points that you see, the stars. Um, and so this is a way that we can actually use um, nanobots for sensing. Okay, so last application that we're going to talk about is using nanobots to make vaccines. So vaccines are important for obvious reasons, mainly protecting us from infectious diseases, so keeping us all healthy. Um, I think a great example is to look at um, measles. So if we look at uh, the cases of measles um, over years, so from 1944 to 2004, um, and we look and see what happened when the vaccine was introduced in the late 60s, you can see that the measles cases dropped significantly to almost zero today. So vaccines are very, very good at keeping us healthy. Um, the challenge with vaccines is they actually take a long time to develop. So vaccine development can take many, 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 many years. Um, and also, vaccines have side effects, as we all know. So we think that the nanobots would be perfect for this application because we can make these synthetic components in a tube and it can be done fairly quickly. So the question is, can we use these to make vaccines faster and safer? Um, some of the other advantages are that we know we can kind of engineer the nanobot to essentially resemble a microbe. Um, we know that they can enhance the immune response and I'll talk about that. Um, and we know that they're safe and well tolerated in animals. And this is actually a pretty critical point. Because if we're talking about ultimately making something that can go into humans, we need to understand the safety profile of that. And so we need to start in animals. So one of the first questions that we ask when we start um, these types of studies is what actually happens to these nanobots inside of an animal? Where do they go? And that's important to understand because for a variety of applications, you may want the nanobot to go to the spleen. You may want it to go somewhere else. So understanding how it's distributed in the body is very important. So the way we do this is we take nanobots and we fluorescently label them. We inject mice and we use a fluorescent imager to look for that fluorescent signal in the animal. So in this particular case, I'm going to show you data where we injected mice in the stomach, with, um, which is what we call intraperitoneal. Okay? And then four hours later, we ask the question, where do we see that fluorescent signal? And so in this particular case, um, what you're looking at here is the animal on the right in these images is the animal that received the, the fluorescently labeled nanobot. And the animal on the left is an animal that received just a salt solution, which is what we call a saline control. 
So you would not expect that animal to have any fluorescent signal. Um, and what you can see is that that signal is localized in very specific places. Um, so in the first image where the animal is laying on its stomach, you can see a very, very bright signal, kind of this yellowish, whitish signal where the bladder is. If we turn the animal on its side, you can see that same very bright white, orangish signal um, in the back, um, up a little bit higher, that's the kidney. And then if you flip the animal on its back, you can see both kidneys. So what this tells you is that when you inject this fluorescent nanobot intraperitoneal or into the stomach, a lot of it is gonna be cleared through the kidneys. It's gonna be cleared very rapidly, and ultimately the animal will pee it out, so you can see it in the urine. So if we take this image on the right, and we now say, let's take the organs out of this animal and let's see what those organs look like. We can see, again, the kidney has the highest signal, which is what we would expect. It's what we saw in the whole animal. The liver also has a pretty high signal. We see some fluorescence in the spleen and very little in the lung. So what this means is, again, um, that if you inject these animals in the stomach with these fluorescent nanobots, most of that will be cleared out of the kidney and liver. Now, the question is, what happens if you actually um, give the animals this fluorescent nanobot a different way? So, for example, if you give it in the nose, does it go to the same places in the body? So many of you have probably had the flu mist vaccine, which is just a, a nasal mist up your nose. Um, we kind of recapitulate this in mice. So mice naturally are nose breathers. They don't breathe out of their mouth. So if you just put some liquid on the nostril, they'll just breathe it in. So it simulates how you get the flu mist, essentially. So if we administer these fluorescent nanobots intranasally, as we call it, and we compare that with what we saw when we gave it intraperitoneal in the stomach, we see a very different distribution profile. So in this case, if we compare on the right side the intraperitoneal, which we saw already, with the intranasal, you can see that the signal in the kidney is pretty low. And that's very different from what we saw when we gave it in the stomach. Um, it's low in the liver and it's low in the spleen, but it's very, very high in the lung. So what that tells us is the way that these nanoparticles, these nanobots are distributed in the body is very much dependent on how you administer them. So it's different if you give the animal the fluorescent nanobot in the stomach versus the nose versus the muscle versus under the skin. That profile is going to look different. So that's something that we, we'd like to keep in mind when we're thinking about ways that we can use these. So one of the other things that's very important to understand is whether or not these nanobots are toxic, okay? Um, I'm not going to show you any of that data, but we've done a lot of studies to demonstrate that these particles, these nanobots, are not toxic to the mice. The mice tolerate them very well. So two important things. Where do they go in the body, and are they toxic or not? Okay, so how do we use these four vaccines? So the first thing that you need to do if you want to develop a vaccine is you need to have a target microorganism in mind. So what are you trying to protect against? If you're trying to protect against influenza, then you need to have, um, obviously, the virus, and you need to identify a protein from that virus. Um, so in this case, you identify the microorganism, you isolate and express a protein, um, and then you have to do something else. You have to actually add what we call an immune-stimulating molecule. Um, and the reason you have to do that is because proteins by themselves are not very immunostimulatory, okay? So adding that immune-stimulating molecule is really going to ramp up your body's immune response to that protein that you, you want the response directed against. So now you have your isolated protein, you have your immune-stimulating molecules, you can put these into the NLP to make your vaccine nanobot, 
Okay, so that nanobot has all the constituents you need. It's got your protein, your immune-stimulating molecule, and now you're ready to vaccinate your mice. So we do that a variety of ways. We vaccinate our mice mainly intranasally, but we've done a lot of different routes in the stomach, in the muscle. Um, So it just depends on what kind of a response you're trying to elicit. And then over time, you can sample this animal and you can start to ask questions about how the immune response uh, looks to this vaccination. So how's the animal responding? So how do we do that? So again, after vaccination, we let some time pass, and we can actually take blood from these animals, okay? So we sample their blood um, various times after we vaccinate them. What are we looking for when we do that? Well, when we take blood, we're actually looking for the presence of molecules called antibodies, okay? So this is why vaccines, in large part, why vaccines work, because your body develops these molecules called antibodies. Um, And what happens is the antibody is specific specifically will recognize that protein you were vaccinated with. So for example, if it was a flu protein, you have antibodies in your blood that recognize that specific protein from flu. So if you were to actually get infected with flu, those antibodies are are already there and can already bind and that prevents you from getting sick. So this is a really good measure of how your immune system is functioning. So what does that actually look like? So we draw blood, we look for antibodies, And then we can uh, produce data that looks like this. So this is a very common way to look at basically the level of antibody present in the blood, or what we call a titer. Okay, so if you look at the time after vaccination on the x-axis, this particular mouse, we drew blood 4, 8, 12, and 32 weeks after we vaccinated. So 32 weeks is a fairly long time point. So a mouse, the lifespan of of a typical lab mouse is about two years. So this, this animal we, we kept for quite a while. Um, and then you can actually quantify the level of antibody present in the blood, okay, and look at that titer. So you can see this particular mouse, titer levels are fairly high, and they remain pretty high over that period of time, which is nice, indicating some stability in, the, in that immune response. In other words, the titers don't come up and then crash. They kind of maintain, which is great. In, yellow, in the yellow um, circles, what you see is um, the same uh, data from an animal, a control animal. So this animal was vaccinated with a saline solution. So it did not receive the, the nanobot vaccine. And you would not expect that it would have any measurable titer, which it doesn't. So this is one way that we can look at the immune response to our vaccination. Ultimately, the best test that we can do is to take this vaccinated animal, infect it, with the microorganism that we're trying to protect against, and then ask the question, does that animal survive? Does it get sick? Um, And so that's ultimately what these types of experiments look like, and is really what's needed to get these nanobots from the bench top to, to people, to us, to actually use and be functional. Okay, so three examples of how we use nanobots. So I'm just going to summarize um, what we've talked about. So we can make these NLPs in a a test tube, which is great. So this is a synthetic reaction. Um, It can be fairly quick. Um, And we can also functionalize them in various ways. So we can make many different kinds of nanobots, depending on the application that we're interested in. Um, And today we've talked about three applications that we use pretty routinely for nanobots. 
Um, but there's a variety of other things. So as Matt mentioned previously, you can, nanobots can be used for cancer imaging and cancer therapy, um, as well as drug delivery. Um, various things that you can do with these nanobots. So I would like to just take a minute to acknowledge a lot of people that have worked um, on this nanobot technology with us or currently work on this technology. So uh, Matt, Wei, and myself, we're up here today talking to you, but there are a number of people that have been involved in this. Um, my colleague Nick Fisher is in the audience. Nick, raise your hand. So Nick is very involved in making these particles and characterize them, characterizing them, and he's worked on the vaccine applications with me for many years now. So um, thank you all for coming. We're happy to take questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.